So we are in a series right now called Why We Love the Church. And this morning we are talking about um, something that I'm very interested in. Um, and I'm going to make it as exciting as possible. But first, I want to tell you a story. Also, if you have a Bible, you can open it to Judges. That's right, it's going to be a Judges sermon. You can open it to Judges, and um, we're going to get there eventually uh, to chapter 2 of Judges. Um, so I read this story online a few months ago, and I was trying to decide the best time to share it. I think now would be a good time. It was a, it was a new story about a, a house, a household in England, and the wife called an exterminator. He came out to deal with some infestation issues that they had. And he went up in the attic to look around, and when he did, he found this. And it was a 25-foot python skin up in the attic. This is it stretched out in his truck. And he pulled it out of the attic, and he showed it to her, and the lady said, oh, yeah, I forgot about that snake. <laughs> and she said, like, she said, 30 years ago, we had a rat problem. They were eating the wires. And so I found this snake in the chicken coop, and I put it in the attic. And the rat problem went away, and then I just forgot about it. Um, and her husband didn't know anything about it. And she said, I didn't tell my husband. And then I didn't, this isn't me, this is her. I don't know if this is really a thing. She said, because he's Irish. And you know, Irish people can't stand snakes. I don't know if that's a thing. But um, very prejudiced against Irish people, even though she married one. And so she's like, so I didn't tell my husband at all. And so for 30 years, this 25-foot python has been living in their walls and their attic and she just forgot about it, and an exterminator sent an exterminator up into their attic without telling this guy about it. They did not find the snake, they just found that, but it was a pretty recent snake skin, so they know it's there somewhere. Um, so I'm sure they slept well that night, right? He's like, comes out at night, eats their food and stuff, and comes back in. We um, keep losing cats. Um, the, I was gonna share, I was going to share this story at first, like when I was talking about marriage, because it's just like, talk about bad communication. Oh, I forgot to mention that 25-foot python in the attic. But um, I was thinking about it more this week because uh, we're talking about specifically the history of the church. I know, exciting stuff. Uh, the history of the church and why we love the history of the church and why it matters so much for us if we're going to talk about why we love the church. And whenever you talk about the history of the church, you talk about one basic idea, which is this. Uh, one of the most important things for us to be able to do as people is simply remember things that have happened. And yet we have this incredible ability to forget some of the biggest and most obvious things that you would think that we would remember, um, like a 25-foot python living in our attic. Uh, it's amazing how quickly we forget things that are a pretty big deal. I think we could all think of examples of things in our life that we have forgotten at times, and it's just shocking to think that it slipped our mind. Um, but when we talk about God's people in the church, we're usually talking about a group of people who really struggle to Remember some of the basic things about who God is, what he does, who the church is, what the church does, and how things have gone for us in the past. And um, in order to talk about the history of the church, we essentially have to talk about remembering the things that have come before. I, uh, I told I was telling Joey backstage that maybe because this is on history and it's not that like exciting that if he could stand next to me with an electric guitar and just kind of like every once in a while like wow you know and so he might come up here if if it gets real slow okay if I see you guys nodding off Joey's going to come up and punctuate my sermon points with by just shredding on a guitar. Um, one of my favorite books of the Bible is Proverbs, and Proverbs is a book of. Proverbs, which are these short sayings, and these sayings have a lot to do. I know, I just blew someone's mind when I explained Proverbs as a book of Proverbs. Yeah, that's right. There's more to come, guys. We're going to go real deep this morning. Proverbs are wise sayings. They're things that we ought to live by. They have a lot to do with wisdom. And the first thing that, one of the first things you read about in Proverbs is where wisdom comes from. And Proverbs tells us that, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. 
So the beginning of any form of real wisdom that is lasting and true and meaningful in the world and reality in which we live is based upon an understanding of how big God is and who he is and a healthy fear of him, okay? So a fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Without a fear of the Lord, you cannot truly have wisdom. Now, Proverbs also describes wisdom like this. It says in Proverbs 1.8, Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching. So it describes wisdom as something that is passed down from a previous generation to the current generation. It's a father saying, son, hear my instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. Don't choose the opposite of the things that the people who have come before you have warned you about and have told you about. We read in Proverbs 4, hear my son and accept my words, that the years of your life may be many. Because if you follow the advice I give you, if you do the things that I tell you to do, if you accept this wisdom and live it out, your life will be a good one. Wisdom is practical. Things will go better for you in the end, regardless of the circumstances you face. If you deal with it, taking into account the things that your forefathers tell you about what they've already experienced. Here are the holes that I fell in. Here are the rocks I tripped over. Here are the temptations that I faced. And here are the areas where I saw great things happen easily. That is wisdom to take it and say, I'm going to apply it to my life. And if I do, then my life will maybe, will, will more likely go better. The years will be longer. The days will be better. We read this in Proverbs 15. Folly is a joy to him who lacks sense, but a man of understanding walks straight ahead. Another description of wisdom in Proverbs is a straight path. So there are these two paths that we read about in Proverbs. One is completely straight from point A to the point that you're going to. But then the other is this windy path. And the idea is that a person who lacks sense, who doesn't have wisdom, is constantly doing this. They're walking one way, and then, nope, that wasn't right. Nope, then they go this way. Oh, okay, I was wrong too. I'm gonna go back over here. They go this way. And they're on a windy path that takes much longer to get to the destination that you wanna go upon. Now, what person, when given a straight path, would choose to walk the windy one? A fool is who would do that. A person who, someone that comes before them says, here is the right road, the one that takes less time, the one that involves less trial and difficulty, and, uh, and walk along it. A fool is the one. Somebody who enjoys folly is the one who says, nope, I'm going to go this way. I'm going to figure it out for myself. And then they start doing this for the majority of their life. It never ceases to amaze me the ability that any person really could have to just simply choose for a season of their life to ignore all wisdom and all common sense and just live foolishly, knowing it's going to be harder. Sometimes we tell ourselves, oh, that's life, right? Life is just making mistakes and being foolish and kind of being dumb, especially in certain seasons of life, right? People will say like, oh, those were my my college years and I just decided to kind of be foolish in those years because that's what that part of life is all about. Or those are my teenage years or those are my, I don't know, retirement years. I don't know. When people decide, you know, I'm going to do that. Uh, It's up to you whenever you decide to do it. But Proverbs says that the wise man is the one that walks in the straight path. And the foolish man is the one that wastes all their time going back and forth. Probably the best thing that Proverbs says about wisdom is that when a man's folly brings his way to ruin, his heart rages against the Lord, which means that we have a tendency to when we live foolishly by not paying attention to the words of those that have come before us, to then, when our life falls apart, blame God for it. I think the best translation of this is in the message where it says this, people ruin their lives by their own stupidity. So why does God always get the blame? This is, a, this is the statement you put on a sign in your house, right? You, you put it next to, as for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. You put people ruin their lives by their own stupidity, so why does God always get the blame? Maybe put it in a bathroom or someone can kind of focus on it for a while, you know? <laughs> and this is what we do, is that when we choose to walk that windy path and things start to fall apart for us and we get frustrated, we give God the blame much of the time. Why do I say all of this about wisdom? Because when we talk about the church and what it is for us as a church to walk and live in wisdom, the first step to doing that is looking back and saying what wisdom is offered to us from those that have come before. And while the tendency and the nature, the desire of the church is often to reinvent ourselves so that we can continually be more relevant in the world in which we live, We are wise to first look back and say, what have other people done as they've tried to be relevant to the culture and the world in which they live? 
And then how often when the church finds itself suffering or, or, or dying or going through difficult circumstances, does it look up and say, God, why would you let this happen? God, how could you really allow your church to go through something like this when oftentimes it's our own foolishness that is to blame? So there's great value in looking to the history of, our, of the church, of the, of the church that, that Christ founded when he, when he told the disciples to go and make disciples of other nations and to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. When he said to build the church um, and that the Holy Spirit would empower what they would do, that Jesus said, this is the way I want my gospel to be known in the world. It's not gonna be me directly doing it anymore. It's gonna be you guys. So if that's the case, then how has that worked? Well, when we look, I wanna, I wanna look in Judges um, chapter 2, because I want to look at what happened when God's people basically failed to do this. In Judges chapter 2, verses 6 through 12, they say this. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. Joshua and Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in Timnath Harris, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that the Lord had done, that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. One of the things that I'm constantly struck by when I read, when I read passages like this is how it could happen. What we're reading about here is simple. Joshua dies and all the leadership with him die. And all of those, it says, who personally got to experience the mighty hand of God and the things he did amongst them died. And then what happened was the next generation forgot. They hadn't personally experienced it firsthand, so they would have had to depend upon what was being told to them by others and then listening to those others telling them. Now, we don't know if it wasn't told to them well. We don't know if they chose not to listen. But what we do know is that a big influence upon them was the cultures outside, uh, that there were these other gods that they were being tempted to worship, that they were being tempted to look to. And so as this generation dies, what we see is a cycle that will happen again and again and again in the Bible. And it is this, God's people forget. And then they sin and they worship other gods. And then eventually bad things will happen to them and they will repent. And then God will save them. He will rescue them. He will be with them again. And then they will choose to ignore him again. And then they will follow other gods again. And again and again, the cycle will go on and on and on. But the number one lesson that we see when we look to these people is this, remember the past. Remember what God did amongst you. If you do that, then you won't get caught in this same cycle. Remember what happened in the last generation. And as much as we would like to believe that we live in the most unique and special and significant time in the history of the world, it's not that different from times of those that have come before us, we find. One of my least favorite things about college, oh, I was a history major and a philosophy major, and all my upper division history classes were the same thing. It was like you write the same kinds of papers, you do the same kinds of stuff, it's just different content. And every class started the same way, and I'm sure some of you guys have been in this experience. The teacher stands up and they take a moment of dramatic pause, and they say, what is history? Anyone? Anyone? You know? What is, what is math, really? 
Anyone? You know? And you're like, I have no idea what you're talking about. I don't know what. It's life. Math is life. That's what I meant. Math is, oh, okay, yeah, obviously, right? You know? And they would always also ask this question. Why do we study history? And if you've been to one of these classes, you know the answer. Everybody knows the answer. And if you haven't figured it out yet, it's really easy. And then when you say it, they're really happy. And they've got this whole speech prepared. And someone's got to say this or else they can't give the speech that they prepared, which is... Uh, we study history so we can uh, not repeat the mistakes of our past. Yes, that's why we study history. Because if you study the first president of the United States, when you're not president of the United States, you will know what he did when you're not doing anything he did. No, it doesn't make a lot of sense. But still, that's what they say every time. But the truth is, as crazy as it is, that now I've set myself up to look like a total hypocrite. This is the reason why we study the history of the church. Because we have a tendency to repeat the same things. And as much as we like to believe the world around us is so unique and different, the world around us often has the tendency to bring about the same sets of circumstances. So much has happened with the church in thousands of years since Christ gave the Great Commission to his disciples. Uh, for, for, for in the initial phase of the early stages of the church, you had the disciples and the apostles who traveled around as missionaries and preached the gospel and planted churches and encouraged those churches. You had someone like Paul, who was a Roman citizen, and it gave him freedom to travel all throughout the Roman Empire, and it expanded the reach of the gospel. And then for a few hundred years, we have these other early church fathers who function like bishops as they go around and they lead these churches. They have this incredibly important period that they call sort of the formation of the, the Catholic or the one true church. Church. And the idea of that is that they, they bring together uh, these, uh, they get together as groups and they have meetings and they form creeds and they put together the scripture and they say, we agree that this is God's word for us, that it's infallible and that, it's, and, and that, this, word is, uh, that this word is inerrant and that this word is literally true. And so we will all agree that this is God's word. And they did these very important things that kind of also made it clear all those who didn't believe God's word and all those who believed in heresies and things like that, that they could kind of say, no, that's not what we believe. Because as we've read, the gospel must be protected. Um, it's what Paul warns us against the most is allowing the gospel to be polluted. And then we see the rise of something called Christendom in which, because the Roman Empire had fallen and there wasn't really a way for a lot of different nation states to be bound together in this bigger sense that they had been before. A pope makes a king an emperor and they basically decide that they're gonna form a new empire. And that's gonna be bound together not by what state you're in or anything, but it's gonna be bound together really by this church and this pope and this belief that you have in Christ. But then we see exactly what would happen if, if there was a group of people bound together by a flawed human being who is saying that they are an infallible human being who can speak on behalf of God and people don't have access to scripture themselves. We see things like the Crusades. As they go about taking back holy lands to themselves, we see wars in the name of Jesus and in the name of the, the Bible and in the, the name of expanding God's kingdom. We see the medieval times and the rise of the popes and some of the greatest abuse of power that we've ever seen, but then we also see reformation happen. We see people that God brings through the history of the church who continue to bring us back to his word. And that we get to a, we get to a point now which is an unprecedented time of access to God's word. That we can now look at his word for ourselves and say, and, and see what is true, and then, and then hold that up to the things that we see and experience in our lives, in the world, in our families, in the church. And it's an incredible place to be in. But when we look at the history of the church, and we see countless examples of things that we ought to look at and, and, and model, that we ought to say, this is how we want to function as a church. Look at, look at where we went well. Look at how things went well. And how can we continue to do that now? How can we preach the gospel? We see missionary movements, and we see uh, efforts by people to go to other countries in the name of Jesus, and we see them succeed in great ways, and we learn from those ways. We see people start churches in great ways, and we learn from those ways. But what we also see when we look at the history of Christianity is we see dark spots. We see, the, we see the moments of things that we're not proud of, the things that we look to and say, how do we defend that? 
And there's no way that we could look at our history and try to gain some wisdom from it if we don't look at the mistakes that we've made, if we don't look at the things that happened that we're not very proud of. Because that's really oftentimes where wisdom comes from. It comes from the holes that we fall in, um, that we tell to the next person, don't fall in that same hole. The Crusades, for example, they weren't uh, something that was driven by religious ideology, Predominantly, They weren't driven by these incredibly devout people who had a desire for the gospel of Jesus to be heard by all people, especially Muslims. You see, the, the Holy Land, like Jerusalem, had been occupied by Muslims for many years, and Christians could go and visit on holy days, and that was okay. But then at one point, a sort of a minority group of Muslims that were more militant took over, and they, uh, they began persecuting Christians when they came to Jerusalem. And they began, uh, and so the Christians decided, the Pope decided, really, this is a great opportunity for my power to grow and for us to uh, get all of the good things that can come from a successful war. And so they begin a crusade, and they say, in the name of God, we're going to go take back the Holy Land, because that's what God would want. He would want us to lift up a sword in his name and kill people so that we can take back some land, because that's what would bring honor to him. Now, the majority of people who fought in the Crusades didn't fight for simply religious fervor. They fought because um, that was one of the ways that you gained land, and there wasn't a lot of land left to get. And so if you went on a crusade, you could get some of that, and you could bring your entire household with you, all of your servants, and people made money on crusade. A lot of people went on crusade simply because there wasn't anything else that a lot of people were doing at the time. And it gave people something to be a part of and to do. And it was true that they were told by the Pope, that if they gave their lives for this thing, that their sins would be forgiven. A total perversion of what the Bible tells us. This is a classic example of an abuse of power, of a person in charge using God's name um, wrongly and leading people astray with it. But what it also shows us is really what you see in Christendom at this time is more like a government than it is a church. This isn't a group of people worshiping together in the way that we do now. Like I said, this is a, a group of, of separate entities and groups that are bound together under the umbrella of Christian belief, and the Pope uses this, the emperor used this as a way of just keeping everyone in order and keeping them together. And so we don't look necessarily at this thing and say, that's the church per se, like we experience it today. We look at it and say, it's as much a government, it's as much a, a group of rulers and people as any other system that you would look at. We look at things like slavery and the history of, of our own country. And we look at the accusations that people would often make that, that Christianity, that, that, that the Christian church had a role in supporting that or not fighting it as much as the church ought to. And it's true that obviously slavery has existed in America. That by the time it came to America, it existed in almost every other civilization because it seems like slavery ends up becoming a part of any civilization until they figure out how wrong it is and they, they remove it from their society. But because America is so industrialized and we like to do things on a really big scale, that we, we engage in the, slavery, in, the trade of slavery, in the trade of slaves on a scale that a lot of others wouldn't and never had before. We see the same kinds of abuse happen in the, the rise of big business in, early, uh, in the early in this last century. Uh, we see something called the Gilded Age, which is basically you have these cities filled with immigrants that come in from other countries, and they are forced to live in terrible living conditions, to work in horrible factories, and we basically build up an economy based on off the backs of other people. And, uh, and a lot of people would look at this and say, is this something that the church had supported without recognizing that the very end of slavery itself would ultimately come from the church? And that what we see when we look at these things is, is more the fact that, uh, well, it's similar to what you would see today. If a person were to, let's say 100 years from now, look back today, and they would say, do you know that in 2019, that America, a Christian nation, a nation where the president swears into office with his hand on a Bible, a nation with God's name on their money, a nation with the words of the Bible written in some of their halls of government, a nation that says they're founded on God and those principles, a nation that identifies themselves as Christian. Do you know that it's legal to abort babies in that nation in 2019? Can you believe that, that those Christians in that nation would allow that thing to happen? 
in a similar way that we would look at our time now when we would say, is that a fair characterization of the entire church? No. We recognize the fact that these are the kinds of situations that the church has lived in and lived through. There's a quote that I want to read you from a historian, and I think that it, it, it does a good job of explaining why these things matter. He says this, Human systems arise and thrive and then fall because the processes of time have their own built-in judgment. Institutions which at first glance seem to be quite worthy eventually crumble to ruins because the centuries themselves bring out the flaws. What is judged, of course, is not this man or that, but the system itself. At the bottom is the inadequacy in human nature that comes under judgment. For in the course of time, it is human nature that turns the good thing into abuse. You see, what the Bible tells us and what we recognize is that the reason for these things, for war and for slavery and for poverty and for the subjugation of people, the reason for these things is not one system of government, one religious group, one system of belief, but it is the heart of man. And what we recognize with any institution is that over time, it judges itself. It's forced to play out the implications of these false things much of the time that it believes. We see this happen with the popes, that ultimately they would get to a point in the church where it would become so obvious to everybody how depraved these guys were, how hypocritical these guys were, that reform was almost inevitable. And this is ultimately what we see happen. And we see in the midst of some of the most difficult situations, we see Christians come out of these situations and do incredible things as we begin to see reform happen. We see during the papacy, which is when the popes were kind of, um, well, when the popes were around, is we see the rise of this group called monks. And uh, monks were a group of people, or they were kind of a type of person who separated themselves from the church. They would go away. They would live in the wilderness. They would live in caves. They would go live in these societies that were separate, that were different from the church. And the purpose of that was to not allow themselves to be influenced by the church because they believed that it had gone off track, but instead to focus on scripture and to live lives of poverty because they believed, as crazy as it sounds, that if you follow the teachings of Jesus, it's more likely to lead to poverty, willing, like, like, like self, self-chosen poverty than it would be to lead to being a rich pope. And so they began to live this way. And what we see is that in this time, every reformer and every good leader that comes out of of, of the church comes out of one of these groups. They're a friar, they're a monk, they're one of these saints that come out. Um, And and they come out having greatly influenced the church. I was talking to a sound guy once in a church and he was saying that one of the hard things about being a sound guy is that when you do your job, nobody knows you exist. Uh, they just don't know you're back there, you know? But then, man, the moment something messes up, the moment something messes up, the, uh, the head turn. And, and sound guys, they, they really, they live in constant fear of the head turn, which is just the slow look to the side. You guys don't know what you're looking for, right? You're not like, I don't know what's back there. I, don't know. I mean, I, maybe if I look back, I'm expecting to see no one. That's the only thing that would make sense, right? If something wasn't working. But, uh, but, but this is the nature, oftentimes, of even being a Christian and even being a group that lives by a certain set of, 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 of guidelines or of rules, is that when you, when you live the way that you're called to live and do what you're called to do, nobody notices, And then when someone stands up and does something different than the message in which you proclaim, then it becomes much more obvious and it becomes much easier to notice. So there's a couple of things that we see. And just to embrace the the idea of this being a history lesson, because I just thought that would really be exciting. Um, I actually named the sermon points History lessons, okay? So there's, there's a bunch of them. So history lesson number one. Are you guys ready? Okay, everybody ready? Am I, am I gonna need Joey for this? No, okay, no, I don't think so. Okay. <laughs> we'll do it, we'll do it, we'll do one tonight with the Johnson strings. Um, <clears throat> so history lesson number one, okay? When we look at the history of our church, of the church, and we ask ourselves what wisdom we can gain from this because the church is important to us. History lesson number one is this. 
love first. Above all else, we are called to love. Jesus says, you'll know, they'll know that you're my disciples by the way you love one another. And why do I make it the point of saying this? Because it doesn't matter what the cause is. It doesn't matter how right you are. It doesn't matter how wrong they are. And it doesn't matter how messed up the world is. It doesn't matter how passionate or knowledgeable you are, how strongly you feel about something It does not matter how high the stakes are. You are called first and foremost to love. And when the church has gotten itself in the most trouble, it is when we have thought that the circumstances called for us to stop loving. They said that thing that is the death so often of a church, which is the end justifies the means. Jesus wasn't an end justifies the means kind of a guy. He was an end and means kind of a guy. He said, here's the end and here's the means, the way by which we do it. And the way that we do it is through love. And so there will never be a point when you're placed in a situation where what God expects you to do is to not love another person. And that's hard for us. It's really hard. Because we want the other things that can come when we stop loving people, especially living in the world in which we do. I don't know why, but for some reason, my favorite movies, some of my favorite movies are movies about guys who are like an assassin or like, a, like an operative, like a government operative who retires. You know, he's done. He's called it quits. He's out of that life and, and has just chosen a simple, quiet life as a gardener or something, right? And then, until they're pushed a little bit too far. Until someone does something to someone they love and they get sucked right back into that life and they use that particular set of skills and they find every guy until they get to the end of the line and they go back to that thing that they really kind of missed. Imagine how exciting that movie would be if the guy just never did that, right? If it was like gardening, you know, No. And that's it. That's the movie, right? I decided I didn't want to go back to that life, and I don't. This is the way, like, who would see that movie? That would be a lame movie, right? Because what we want to see is we want to see injustice ended. We want to see punishment come. We want to see someone win, and we often, we always want to see the bad guy lose, and we also kind of want to see all the action that happens along the way, because that makes us feel good, too. Loving first is not the most exciting option much of the time, and it doesn't feel very satisfying to us much of the time, but it ought to. And the truth is that we are not here as the church in order to just fix everything and win everything. That we're here first and foremost to love. And that what we do ought to be characterized by that. Those who have made the biggest impact in the world for the gospel are those who have found a way to do great things while loving. Christians who helped the sick during the plagues, who who went to such extreme to help the sick that they were mocked for being crazy. Christians who have taken in refugees and and who have brought food and brought shelter and brought clothing to people when it made no sense to them. Missionaries who went out to new groups of people and helped them in a way that made no sense for them and their own well-being apart from spreading the gospel. Christians fighting to end slavery, like William Wilberforce, who who made it his mission in life to end end slave trading in in Europe, in the European colonies. Historians would go on to say that there there was no effort that cost more to a group than the ending of slavery in England and the European colonies. That it, it cost them more money and it cost them more in, in, in their economic growth and their government to end slavery because of how, how, how lucrative it was for their nation. And yet they did that. And it was led by this man, William Wilberforce. And days before his death, slavery was abolished in England. And it ultimately led to slavery being abolished in other parts of the world as well. It, it paved the way for that as it was made illegal in the colonies. History lesson number two is the church is called to repent, not to reinvent itself constantly. 
One of the temptations of the church is to constantly reinvent ourselves so that we can be more relevant and we can reach more. But the truth is that any time that the gospel is not going out and is not, being, and is not growing in some way, that fruit isn't being produced, what we're really called to do is to ask God if there's a reason why within our own midst. One of the things that our own denomination currently is doing is, is asking that question of, of, of why are we not seeing more people come to faith and what would it mean for us to do that? And for a lot of us, it's involved repenting of saying, have I focused on other things to the detriment of the gospel going out and to people receiving it and responding to it? Have I made that a priority? And the truth is that the reason the church ever struggles is not because it's not relevant culturally, but because it is not consistent, usually, with some of the most basic aspects of being a Christian. As a church, right now, we are trying as hard as we can to simply live out the Great Commission, to make disciples who make disciples. What we realize, any one of us, when we stop and look at our own lives and say, how am I doing that, is we realize it's really hard to do. In fact, it's hard to take the average American life and figure out how that at all could lead to disciples being made. Because that life is entirely about myself and my own satisfaction. And so we realize that one of the most fundamental things that Jesus calls us to do is really hard for any of us to do and to live out. And so really our effort as a church is to, is to repent of the times that we don't do it and to say, God, help us do it more. Help me do it more. Help me let go of the things Help us as a church let go of the things that could get in the way of following you. The world does not need less devout Christians. It needs more devout Christians. It doesn't need a more watered-down version of anything. It needs people who are actually just going to consistently live out the things that they talk about. So we look at what kept us in the past from being devout, from being committed and being consistent in the past. And we try to learn from that. And the truth is, much of the reason why the, the church, even in America, is struggling and has struggled and has seen itself decline for a while now is because we focus for so long on functioning simply as this kind of consumer system where we're just constantly trying to find ways to give better things to each other all the time rather than actually reaching those who are unreached for the gospel. And so we, we deal with the fruit of that, and so we, we repent, and we say, well, then what does it mean for us to do something different, each and every one of us, to live with a different expectation of what it means to be a follower of Jesus? What if for me to be a follower of Jesus means to make disciples who make disciples, not to simply be discipled forever until I go to heaven by someone else? The third history lesson is this, God and man never change. God is the same that he was yesterday and will be tomorrow, and we are the same that we were yesterday and we will be tomorrow. Can we grow? Yes. Can we see sin gone from our life? Yes. Can we see more of our heart given over as we, as we are sanctified? Yes. But we recognize that the mistakes that people made in the past are some of the mistakes that we're prone to make now, and the things that were easy for us in the past are going to be probably more easy for us now. We have a tendency towards licentiousness which is just doing whatever feels good and saying that's what life is and it's not that bad. Towards legalism and towards the desire to, to, to just take everything and think that this is all brand new and it's all different now. God will continue to pursue his people, to redeem his people and to demand holiness from his people. He always has and he always will. That will always be who God is. No matter what happens around us or how much we would ever want it to be different, that doesn't change about who God is. He doesn't stop caring. He doesn't stop pursuing. He doesn't stop saving. And he doesn't think it's okay to hate and to judge and to envy because our set of circumstances now is so unique and different that those things are what's acceptable. God doesn't change. Man, doesn't really change. We know that. And it's when we think, no, 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 I'm the exception. We're the exception. Or God's different now than he was before, that we're wrong. History lesson number four. We must know our culture. And the reason is because culture has the power to shape us instead of the gospel. Culture is the world that we live in, and we are a part of it. 
okay? You're not outside of it. You don't get to talk about culture like it's this other thing that you're trying to be separate from. It's, it's affected you. It has, in a part, made you who you are and see the world the way that you see the world. And so we have to know what's going on around us. We have to know what this culture really looks like if we're going to know how it's, how it's shaping our thinking and what it means for us to be shaped by the gospel instead of just our circumstances around us and the values that our society has and our world has. It is so easy to look back on a group of people and see how the culture influenced them. It's so easy. That's one of the things that we do in history is we break things up into time periods and eras and ages and groups by things that happen and we say, this is when everyone was like this. This is when everyone was like this. This is when everyone was like this. Do we ever stop and think, where are we now? What is everyone now? And how is that influencing the way that I see the gospel? And why don't we want culture to win out, but we want the gospel to? It's not because culture is bad, but it's because culture is constantly changing and the gospel doesn't. And so we can actually live built upon a foundation that's consistent and unchanging, no matter what happens. And culture is constantly changing. I was listening to, I was watching a, a program where they were talking about the idea of marriage and the idea of monogamy and the idea of love and how it's changed and um, adapted over hundreds of years and how the idea of a soulmate is a relatively new invention. Um, that, that in the Western world, in our mindset, you will find a person who is your soulmate and they actually, they act, Matt and Hannah are smiling because they're soulmates, okay? But they, they did it, okay, fine, they did it. You start early and you can do it. But they, this guy did like this mathematical equation just to talk about like how many, okay, you're a guy, how many women are in the world? Okay, how many, um, okay, now of all of those people, uh, your soulmate is only one of them, right? There's one counterpart to you that spiritually has a connection to you and they're meant to be your soulmate forever, and, uh, and then, and then you, the chances that you found that person in your junior high um, in eighth grade is, yes, there you go, yeah, gosh, a lot of that here, right, and, and we, we, we think things like that, we go, yeah, that, that is like, a, that's the way that we even think about the idea of love and marriage, is the idea that we have this person that our soul is connected to for a lifetime, and that we found them, but, but what we know is that historically speaking, that's relatively new that we see things that way, that marriage for many people um, has usually been more about the way that you act towards and treat a person than how you feel about a person at any given time in your life, that that really defines what marriage is, but we live in a culture that defines it differently. And that's not bad because it's added some great things to marriage. But if we don't see that it's a unique thing in and of itself, then it'll trip us up. History lesson number five, tradition is relevant. If we want faith that is relevant, we recognize the importance of religious traditions. What God's people made the mistake of doing was worshiping other gods and worshiping other things. We live in this world that's constantly changing. Things are crazy all over, all the time. And so we are called to continue to meet together, right? So, so we, we meet together as the church regularly. It is a tradition that we have that gives us a way of sort of counteracting all the other stuff going on in life, and it keeps things consistent and stable. We, we go to God's word regularly. We go to him in prayer regularly. We worship him. And by doing that, we reflect on who he is and we are changed and we are praising him. We're simply giving God what is his because the real reason that God made us wasn't so that we could accomplish things, was so that we could simply glorify him. And so when we worship, we do the very thing that we're created to do in this pure way. One of the greatest reformers that ever came about was John Wycliffe who came about in the 700s. And he was one of the earliest people to stand up and say, hey, wait a second. I don't think the popes are that great. And uh, also, I think people should read the Bible themselves. And he got together a group of people that tried to translate, that translated the text um, into a language that people would be able to understand. And that's why we talk about Wycliffe when we talk about Bible translation. And believe it or not, he was considered a heretic because he said that if a pope was doing bad things, that they shouldn't be a pope anymore, that they weren't infallible in the same way that they were. But what he recognized 
was that if man didn't have the ability to see God's word and to interact with it, and that if our own leaders who had it weren't going to give it to us with honesty and truth, then how would we be able to live as followers of Jesus in this world? Traditions are important. They are important. And we go back to them again and again. Now, we don't treat them like idols, and we don't believe that our faith is in our ability to obediently follow traditions, but we recognize that these things matter and these things are relevant. I say this because, again, we have a tendency to believe that the way to be relevant is to completely reinvent everything we do, to maybe walk away from all the things we do and start doing something different. But every person that I've talked to who gives up gathering together as part of the church, who gives up going to God's word as a way of hearing from him and speaking to him, um, who gives up on prayer and tries to do it some other way, never ends up doing it. They don't. Because these things keep us relevant in this culture. The last one is this, and this is the one that um, I told everybody, you can vote me out as lead pastor. It's been a fun year and a half, and I've appreciated being here with you guys, and it's been really great, but I'm going to go out on this one because you're going to boot me out the door. History lesson number six, and this is the clearest one. Power, wealth, and country compete with the kingdom of God. You cannot be devoted to one of these three things and be devoted to the kingdom of God. Not fully. And the most terrible things that have happened in the history of the church are those things that have happened when people equated achieving power with the kingdom of God growing. And achieving wealth and amassing wealth with the kingdom of God growing. And their nation doing well with the kingdom of God growing. We are not allowed to connect those things. Now, does that mean that power is bad? No. Does that mean that wealth is bad? No. Does it mean that countries are bad? No, they are not bad. And I recognize that I'm able to say these things as a person who has had to do very little work to earn these things in my life. They've been given to me. But we have to recognize that the biggest mistakes that have happened in the history of the church the clearest lesson that we must walk away from is saying it would always be a mistake to say that to amass power is advancing the kingdom of God because it's not. And to amass wealth. I have seen people do some of the worst things when uh, doing them under the guise of sort of economic growth in the name of God. God wants us to do well. He wants this thing to go well. The Crusades are made possible because people allowed themselves to think that gaining back holy sites, land and nations and money would be pleasing to God and that it was acceptable to pick up the sword in the name of Christ. Even though the one time that somebody picked up a sword in the name of Christ, he said, put the sword down. That slavery and abuses of immigrant labor, that was like I was talking about earlier in the Gilded Age, they were tied to Christianity when people allowed themselves to be fooled into believing that economic growth National strength, material comfort, these were things God wanted for us. And so it was okay. The end justifies the means. And as much as we wish that this would never happen again, we have to remind ourselves that no political leader, no economic theory, no form of government, no nation is going to directly lead us to the kingdom of God. And it doing well doesn't mean the kingdom of God has to grow. Ours is God's kingdom, the one that we are a part of first and foremost. We're citizens of that kingdom. And the way that the kingdom of God grows is for the gospel to be proclaimed, for, for people to respond to that gospel, and for us to live lives of holiness. And this doesn't mean that we don't fight for our country, that we don't work hard, that we don't save and be frugal, that we don't try to do these things well, but it does mean that we don't attach these things to God and to Christianity because that's the mistake that we've seen happen in the past so many times. Wisdom is being able to look into the past and say, what happened before I showed up on the scene? And how could I walk in a straight line? And as a church, and as individuals, but as a church, because we love the church, we want every single step that we take to be in the right direction. We don't want it to be off on a path that we'll end up finding out was wrong or that was a mistake. 
And the way that we can ensure that we're as close to that as possible is that we can have the humility to look back and to say, how did people do it before us? That at times we can repent and we can look at our own hearts and we can say, what does it look like for me to walk straight ahead? Because that way we know that our city, that our families, that our own lives, that our world can be really impacted by the gospel. That we can, that we can actually uh, look to all of the things that have been done in the name of Christ, both good and bad, and that we can learn from those things and we can move forward in light of them. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for the fact that so many have come before us, that so many have given their lives for our ability to be here, to worship you, to have your word at our fingertips, to be able to look at it, look upon it, and learn about you whenever we want. And God, we are so grateful for the fact that you've given us this church. And Father, our prayer, our prayer is not that we would be the most relevant church that reinvents itself, that is constantly trying to find ways to do things better and different and new and and fun and captivating, Lord. Our prayer is that we would uh, be a church that is after you and your heart, God, that our heart breaks for those who don't know the gospel and that, that our heart breaks for those who are undiscipled, Lord. God, please give us that heart and in this time as we worship, as we, as we reflect back, even on some of the older songs that, that come as a part of our tradition, Lord, we just reflect upon you, God, how long you have been who you are, that you're the same God today as you were yesterday and you will be tomorrow. It's in your name we pray, amen. Father, we look back into, the, into our own past as a church and we see What C.S. Lewis says is so true that there are many things that a person can give their life for, but not many that are worth living for. And Father, we see so often people who in your name have not lived for you, but other things. And we've also seen the magnificence, the absolute beauty, the, the awesomeness of what can come of those who truly live for you, God. That's our desire today. Each one of us as a church that we would live our lives for you and your kingdom. That you would empower us in that God and that we know that in the end that we will be with you and that we will be praising you. And that what we just experienced is a, is a, a mere glimmer of what is to come, God. You are so good And we love you, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great week.